welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. So at this point, we're very much in the stillness in the heart of the retreat. Having been here for a number of days, things start to quiet down. And while they look quiet anyway on the outside, what's also true is they deepen. Sometimes there comes deep stillness or opening, but also sometimes comes the layers of grief or conflict or rage or um, you know, energy and all kinds of stuff arises within this container of presence as we sit. Tonight I want to speak in a way that's kind of broad about practice, and hopefully it will also feed or nurture the deepening of your meditation process as you continue over these days. And the question I'd like to address is where does this go? You know, it's a little bit like, what do we do this for? Where, where does this lead? And remember in the first evening's talk, I used the phrase, O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, remember who you really are. This invitation from the Buddhist text to return to our Buddha nature. Or what Thomas Merton calls our secret beauty. He writes... Then it was as if suddenly I could see the secret beauty of the hearts of those in front of me. I could see in a way that was past all their ideas of good and bad, of sin and knowledge and desire and fear, to the core, the essence of who that being was behind all those masks. If we could only see each other that way, there'd be no more need for war or hatred or cruelty or greed. I suppose the big problem would be we would fall down and worship each other. And so there is, you can feel it in practice, a kind of um, opening to something beyond our personal biography, even though that spills itself out at times, beyond our body, to some deeper sense of connectedness, the secret beauty, Buddha nature. But to understand where this practice leads, you have to become comfortable with paradox, because paradox is woven into Buddhist psychology and understanding. You need to remember your secret beauty. Otherwise, you can do all kinds of things in the world and succeed in work and you know creative things and whatever. But if you don't remember who you are, you just get lost. Something is missing. But you need to remember more than your secret beauty. You need to remember your Buddha nature and your social security number and your zip code. <laughs> You actually need to be able to embody in this humanness that mystery of being incarnate. And this is the first kind of paradox that you get. You sit here and things get quiet and then the whole of your humanity starts to show itself to you. Now when you become comfortable with paradox or as you become comfortable, you start to notice what the Buddhist teachings describe as form and emptiness, that everything appears you know, new each moment. Where do the thoughts come from? No one knows, but they come trooping out of emptiness and do their dance and disappear. And the emotions come and they disappear. And days do that. So there's form and emptiness playing. And there's also self and selflessness. There's ways in which there is a sense of who we are and our zip code and our, you know, um, family relations and the particular driver's license number. And in another way, it gets more selfless. And both of those are true. We teach you to stay steady, sit and sit like the Buddha, let all things rise and fall. And yet at the same time as we tell, tell you to let things go. So there's keeping steady and letting go. Mary Oliver, the poet, describes this beautifully in two lines. She said, for years and years I struggled just to love my life. That's half of spiritual practice already right there. For years and years I struggled just to love my life. And then the butterfly rose weightless in the wind 
Don't love your life too much, she said, and vanished into the world. And so you can hear both the care for things and also the capacity to let go. Or the paradox of perfection rather than striving to change things. Zen Master Suzuki Roshi, who said, you're perfect just the way you are. Everybody was trying to get different and fix themselves. You're perfect just the way you are. He paused for a bit and he said, and there's room for improvement. (laughs) And they're both true. And if you have only one part, you're lost. You're always in self-improvement game, you know, or everything's perfect so I don't have to do anything. Can you hear the intelligence of paradox? It's a kind of deeper wisdom. And one of the one of the great paradoxes in how spiritual life unfolds is that awakening happens both suddenly and gradually. This long discourse for thousands of years, Buddhist, Hindus, people talking about the sudden and gradual path. It happens suddenly because something in us longs to know eternity, longs to know what's timeless. As someone said, the big question is not the future of humanity, but the presence of eternity. Or um, Aldous Huxley who wrote, an idolatrous religion is one in which time is substituted, substituted for eternity, in which we're just busy filling time rather than recognizing that we live in this amazing timeless realm. And as you sit and get quiet, this sense of the timeless, of the spirit that moves behind all things, and I'm sort of using sloppy language, so forgive me for this, but you know intuitively what I am talking about. Um, This longing to know something that's beyond just the mundane experiences of life without discounting them in some fashion. And it comes to us as we sit in different forms. My teacher, Buddha Dasa, talked about everyday nirvana. He said, you think of nirvana as up in the Himalayas in some cave, but in fact, any moment when we are present without grasping, without resisting, without trying to change, when we're just present with the mystery of life as it is, is a moment of nirvana. Zen Master Suzuki Roshi, the same thing. When you realize that every, the fact that everything changes and find your composure in it, there you find yourself in nirvana. So there's this intuition that we have. It says in the Buddhist text, if the element of wisdom and freedom and awakening did not already exist in you, you wouldn't be moved to seek it, be moved to understand it. But because it's already there in you, you know this, You start to look and say, yeah, there's all these dramas and stories, but isn't there some other dimension? So sometimes it comes in simple moments. You're just sitting and walking, and things get deeply still. And there's a sense of not struggling or trying to make things different, but just opening to the reality of the way things are, and struggle drops away, and there's this beautiful sense of illumination. Or sometimes as you sit, it's more like you feel the space of awareness, this big spacious awareness, not always, but sometimes, and thoughts and feelings and sensations come and go within this timeless space of awareness. Sometimes you sit and walk and it starts to dissolve. It seemed like we were very solid, but you feel the body and it's more and more tingly vibrations and sensations. And the emotions come like different waves and sounds or vibrations. And things start to show that these rivers are not solid, but that experience is always changing. And then you relax in that and go, oh, this is the stream of life. And here's the knowing of it. And you come to a place of profound peace. Sometimes it's with pain. You sit and the measure of sorrows you've been given comes and the tears arrive and you feel all the pain, not only of your life, but of the people around you in the world. Um, and if you let yourself sit with it, it starts to become the, 
an, a, an interesting thing. There are tears that can come that are called tears of the way. They're not just tears because you feel sorry for yourself or you've suffered, which you may very well have. But these are tears because you see that pleasure and pain and gain and loss and joy and sorrow are woven into human existence. And it's simply the way that it is. And if you're going to live wisely, this is how it is. And there comes this relief, this release. Oh, it's not my pain. It's the pain. It's the pain of the world that I've run away from and now I see it. Or sometimes it's the beauty. You walk along and you just get bowled over, you know, by the stark branches of a plum tree against the kind of twilight sky with one little purple leaf still hanging on there or those little birds that kind of do their dolphin swimming in the air all around us and It's just so beautiful. And then it starts to feel like you are a part of them, which of course you are. But it's not knowing it in your head. It's being it. A Taoist master was sitting in his mountain cabin meditating. And a group of Confucian scholars climbed the mountain to visit and speak to him about the proper ways to practice Confucianism being very organized and proper. When they got there, they saw the sage sitting naked before them, and they were shocked and said, what are you doing sitting in your hut without any pants on? The sage replied, the entire universe is my hut. This little, excuse me, the entire universe is my hut. This little hut is my pants. What are you fellows doing in my pants? Right? Or Alice Walker, who described it this way. She writes, One day I was sitting there feeling like a motherless child, which I was, and we all have that in us someplace. And then that feeling of being a part of everything came, not separate at all, and I knew that if I cut a tree, my arm would bleed. And I laughed and I cried and run all around the house. I just knew what it was. In fact, when it happens... You can't miss it. And so there comes an opening beyond the sort of boundaries of self to know truly our connection with all things. Or sometimes it's selfless. You walk and you take a step. Who took that step? Where did that thought come from? And you realize that it's just the universe playing and there's no one you can say, this is who I am. You're part of this river. As Kala Rinpoche, the great Tibetan Lama, said, you live in illusion and the appearance of things, the illusion of separateness. When you understand this, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. And these are things that happen to us. And you say, oh, I'm sitting here and I'm bored. My knee hurts and I'm rerunning my divorce from my second you know, marriage and whatever. What about this mystical stuff? It does happen, even to you. It will. And you know it, and it has happened. It's not that far away. You know that, that that divorce is just not the whole story. So they're common. Sometimes they're very deep, and sometimes they're inklings, but we have this. But they don't usually stay. That To have something stay is not the way things work generally. They give us a connection That's the eternal, the timeless. But the opposite side is that there's also a development. Development of the factors of enlightenment, of calm and concentration and steadiness and joy and mindfulness. They grow in us. Or development of the eightfold path of uh, wise speech, wise action, wise effort, um, wise understanding. And as you sit and walk, you feel this develop or the the paramitas, the perfections of patience and compassion and steadiness and, and, and integrity, as you pay attention and sit and walk and become mindful, all these wonderful qualities grow in you little by little. Forgiveness grows. The capacity to let go gets deeper. And sometimes people think, well, I haven't had those big experiences, which aren't always very big. Maybe it's just walking in the woods. It's just a moment of eternity, but it's there. A friend of mine who 
talks about this, who I interviewed um, for this book after the ecstasy, the laundry, talks about his experience. He says, here I am, a teacher for hundreds and hundreds of students, some who have these great, powerful experiences and mystical moments, but that's not been my way. For a long time, this was the hardest thing to accept, that nothing seemed to have happened in my meditation. I'm not a person with big dramatic experiences. For 30 years now, it's simply been a process of practicing without being caught by my ideas of discouragement or success. I would go for months of training and no spectacular experience would happen. This was especially hard for the first 10 years, but at least I never thought of myself as this great spiritual person. Yet somehow something did change. What most transformed me were the endless hours of mindfulness, of giving a caring attention to what I was doing. I learned that the inner dropping of burdens was not going to happen for me all at once. But again and again, I simply dropped the burden of my judgments, of fear, of distrust of myself, of tightness in body and mind. I discovered how automatically tightness could come. And with that realization, I started to let go, opening to an appreciation of life, little by little finding an ease. And I started to see that in reality, there's not coming or going. Nothing ever really happens. We're just here. Seeing this was like a confirmation. I became less serious, less concerned about myself. My kindness deepened. Oddly enough, my friends tell me I've become more like myself. They say, there's been a very big change in me, but it wasn't produced by some special event. I guess it's just the fruit of being present over and over and over again. Maybe it's that simple. So you hear this paradox of both opening in surprising, timeless ways, and also here we are, the cup of tea, the taking a step, the opening a door, the tying of the shoes, and then when we go home, the eyes of the person that we live with or the care where we work. And these come together in our practice. What's beautiful is what we see from up here. You look better. (laughs) You know, somebody called it the Vipassana facelift or something like that. But basically, the first few days, there's this restlessness and struggle and sleepiness. And now by the beginning, by the middle of the retreat, things are starting to settle down. And your faces look clearer. And by the end, I swear we could sell this stuff in Hollywood. I really think so. There's an ease and a freshness that starts to come and a beginner's mind as you open, even with all the storms that still come. And what comes through it is a kind of shift of identity from the small sense of self, from what's sometimes called the body of fear, to the space of consciousness, mindful awareness, that's clearer or calmer, that's less caught. You know, yes, the hungry ghost comes. You know the hungry ghost in you. You know, or the fear comes, or the loneliness, or the conflict. I mean, I've sat up here and been teaching loving-kindness meditation. and I, You know, I just finished a fight with my wife, right? And I come and it's time to teach metta. And I'm <laughs> saying, you know, think of someone you love a lot, right? And then I'm thinking, boy, I'm going to go back and tell her. <laughs> really, that was not right, and I'm all upset. Okay, now think of someone else you love a lot, I'll say, right? <laughs> And the mind has no pride at all. It will do anything, right? But what starts to happen is this shift where you don't take yourself so seriously. It's just conditioning. You know it, and you have a a, a kind of spaciousness where you're less caught in the stuff that comes in your humanity. You respect it, you love it, but you, you don't own it in that way. You begin to trust the space of awareness, which has a stillness and an aliveness, and a kind of well-being that's called the happiness for no cause. Just the happiness of existence, of being. And now I'm going to say something about enlightenment, and it's a little dangerous, all this stuff, because it's so easy to get attached to something, but it seems important because they talk about it in all these old Buddhist things and stuff like that. There there is not one enlightenment. To have... Um, a wise approach to enlightenment. You have to change the word. 
by one letter and add the plural. There are enlightenments of all different kinds. So that this is how the experience happens. And I was starting to talk about it with the timeless or the being one with or the selflessness. Those are different dimensions of it. The enlightened mind or heart is like a crystal. A heart mind is really the word because they're the same. Is very much like a crystal that has different facets to it. And as consciousness gets clearer or purer, because you're not so caught up and so reactive, the stuff comes, but you can feel they're kind of clarifying. As it gets purer and clearer, then you can experience the qualities of enlightenment at different times in different ways. Sometimes it's experienced as vast silence. Everything becomes profoundly silent, like interstellar space. And there's this movement of life, but it's so still. And it's like the fundamental ground of silence from which all movement occurs. Sometimes you get filled with light, and then the universe fills with light. And it's a literal experience. The body dissolves in light. And you realize that everything is full of light, and it's luminous. The crystal turns a little, and you see the light in everything. Sometimes it's emptiness. It's the darkness before existence. It's a luminous darkness. It's the fertile darkness. It's the darkness that has this whole creativity that will arise out of it. And everything drops away and you just rest in this darkness. Sometimes you turn the crystal and enlightenment is experienced as love. That everything is love. That we're connected in love because we are love. And that the universe is love. Sometimes the crystal turns and you experience freedom, enlightenment as perfection. Where everything, even with the joys and sorrows, is perfect. Exactly the way it is. Sometimes you experience it, as I said, as emptiness. Sometimes you experience it as fullness. As this tremendous web of interconnection and the play of everything in existence as, as if it's, you know, the creative principle displaying all possibilities. And you dissolve into just being this. Now what happens is that in certain meditation traditions and spiritual traditions, people will have us, you know, deepen and open and their consciousness gets clearer and purer and they have a particular experience of enlightenment. Everything is love or everything is empty. The the void from which everything comes. Or everything is luminous and light. Or everything is silence. And then they'll say, this is what enlightenment is. And try to get everybody to go for love or go for silence or go for light or dark or whatever particular flavor it was. There isn't the one total right description of it. Um, Except for this one, of course, right? (laughs) But this is really helpful in understanding because what it starts to do is invite you to open in the way that you uniquely will open and to value or treasure the connection with that which is timeless and sacred that comes as you come on retreat and quiet down in its own way for each of you, to value the growing clarity or the growing love or the growing stillness, which are different aspects of awakened consciousness, of when consciousness becomes free from the small sense of self. And it's not that you still don't have the self. You do. You know, it's like your pet, right? It's your personality. Ramdas talks about how he'd become the connoisseur of his neurosis. You know, it's like, oh, there's a really good example. It's like, you have your personality. And it's not to get rid of your personality. It's part of the game, like your body, you have a physical form, certain colors and shapes and so forth. That's what you get for this incarnation. And you have a personality, that's okay. You know, it can get sort of messed up, as we know, in some of our cases. And you can sort of help it a little bit through attention and releasing stuff and some good therapy and meditation. But basically, it's your personality. It's what it's so... You know, you adopt it, you feed it and throw it a bone and let it run around some. But you don't take it to be who you are. 
there comes a space of wisdom that says, yeah, this is the temperament and this is the body and this is that which is timeless. Now, one of the most beautiful descriptions of this timeless awakening, there are so many in the Buddhist tradition, the factors of enlightenment and the perfections and the Eightfold Path and so forth, is the four divine abidings or the four descriptions of the awakened heart. And we've started to work with them during this retreat. They describe how consciousness manifests when we're not caught in fear and confusion and grasping and um, not caught so much, again, in the small sense of self. And this isn't just like down the road, you know, in the Himalayas after you've been a nun for 20 years in some cave, but it's actually here to be experienced as it develops and displays itself in the moments when consciousness comes um, to be the place of rest for you. And these four Brahma-viharas, which we've talked about and been teaching some, are loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. They're all the qualities of the awakened heart. And part of what's good to understand is that love is the fundamental one. You're there, and love is really a description of connectedness. When we're in relationship, we're actually in a love relationship. We always are. It's like gravity, allurement that pulls things together. Why do you think Saturn and Jupiter and the galaxies? There's some energy that pulls things together that's amazing on the physical plane, and love is another description of it. And it's always here. When love meets suffering, it changes, and it turns to compassion. You know, if you're doing your metta practice, may I be well and safe, and you picture somebody else in your loving-kindness meditation, may you be happy and well. They're not happy. They're in horrible, you know, they've had a cancer diagnosis, and they're in the middle of some terrible thing in their life. May you be happy doesn't feel right. Really, what happens is when love meets that pain, it turns to the second quality, which is compassion. And, there, and I'll talk about it, about what that quality feels like. When love meets happiness, success in another, it turns to joy. Oh, isn't that beautiful? You know, this person I love and this happiness is in them. It transforms the quality of love to a shared joy. And when there isn't um, the extension of love, if you will, uh, in relation to others, then consciousness rests in the place of peace or equanimity. So let's talk about these a bit um, as one of the beautiful expressions of the awakened heart, which is what's happening to you as you sit and walk. So loving kindness, the matter that we've done, it's also called friendliness of heart, and we've talked a bunch about it. Um, the first instruction that the Buddha gave in loving-kindness, as the story goes, was for these monks and nuns who came running back from a wild forest where they'd gone to meditate, and there were wild animals, and they were in caves, and it seemed like there were spirits and ghosts, and help us, we're really frightened. And he said, I will give you practice that will keep your heart at ease or peace, even in these scary places anywhere. And he taught the practice of loving-kindness for all kinds of beings, being far and near, no legs, two legs, four legs, many legs, beings thick and thin, uh, large and small, beings to the north, south, east and west. You know, this wonderful poem I have from Lloyd Reynolds, a great calligrapher, he writes, a bug crawls over the paper, leave him be, we need all the readers we can get, right? <laughs> and in the monastery, you learn this practice of tenderness toward what's there, toward the little crawly insects, toward your own body, toward the beings who come in. Um, and you learn to trust love. Of course, it's hard, most hard for ourselves. We try and direct metta toward ourselves, and often people say it feels weird. There's so much as my colleagues have talked about it commonly of self-judgment and self-hatred. Diana and others talked about it. It's like that Pfeiffer cartoon. There's a, a woman there on her knees with her arms outstretched saying, 
but I love you. And the man is sort of backed in the corner with his arms across his chest saying, don't you threaten me, you know. And there's some way in which we even feel that toward ourselves, you know. It's a little bit threatening to let ourselves feel how much, in fact, we can and should treasure our life. So we start with metta for ourselves, and then we suffuse the world in all these different directions with it. But as you've discovered, it doesn't always happen in an easy way, right? You're doing your metta and wishing well, and sometimes there's this nice warm feeling, and sometimes it feels dry. And it's like I'm doing metta and it's like chewing my cud or something, you know, mechanical. Or sometimes it's the, it brings up its opposite. As I said, you try and think of somebody and you realize that actually you're really pissed at them and you hate them and you're trying to do your metta. May you be happy. Well, sort of, you know. So this is Sharon Salzberg writing about leading a day-long metta retreat at Jerry Brown's in Oakland. I try to have participants do walking meditation on the city streets so they can practice directing a moment of loving kindness toward each person that walks by. You don't look weird or anything, you just do it inside, right? One woman was having a big struggle with metta. It felt so dry, no feelings would come and she wanted them. I told her it's more like planting seeds, just trust. During the next walking period, she chose to walk on the train platform across the street at Jack London Station. As she did, a train pulled in. She tried her metta. One of the people who got off was a man in a suit, obviously hurried, distracted, unaware. She noticed herself judging him. He looked so uptight. Then she judged herself. See, I'm just no good at this metta stuff. But she took a breath, continued wishing him well, and then he walked up to her and said, Excuse me, ma'am, this may sound strange. I've never done this before but I'm facing a really bad situation and you seem to be such a kind and peaceful person and I'd just like to ask if you would pray for me. And she did. So you don't know. You just plant the seeds and you do it over and over and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But neuroscience, as Diana was was talking about, you begin actually to create neural firing patterns that are now measurable in parts of the brain that change through the practice of whatever you practice, and this is the practice of love. Love is innate in us, this is the paradox, and by practicing it, we awaken that which is innate. What matters in doing it is that we begin to trust the quality of love itself. This is Ramdas, who says, where are we? This is, this is the power of one person, a Gandhi or a Buddha or a Christ, who isn't vulnerable to the sways of the world. Don't underestimate the power of the human heart. When I look at the human heart, that link, that doorway, I see an institution that makes the Pentagon look like children's toys. And there is this kind of extraordinary capacity of love. It's not just mothers picking up cars off their children, which happens. It's not not a fiction. Um, But it's really the, the possibility of transforming from the small sense of self to a different relationship to the world. Oscar Wilde's words, he says, who being loved is poor. But it's not always easy, you know, metta. A story I like to read on retreats because it gives the quality of what it means to touch that which is difficult with love because we do for ourselves, our families, our loved ones, and then we start to extend it to beings everywhere and difficult people. This from a surgeon at Yale University, Richard Selzer. I stand by the bed where... A young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clown-like. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be this way from now on. The surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. 
Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband stands next to the bed in the evening lamplight. They look at one another generously. I wonder about him and this wry mouth I have made, who gaze at each other so kindly. The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say it will. It's because the nerve was cut. She nods, is silent, but the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. And all at once I know who he is. I understand and lower my gaze. For one is not bold in an encounter with the gods. And unaware of my presence, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I so close, I can see how he twists his lips to accommodate to hers to show her that their kiss still works. And I remember that the gods appeared in ancient Greece as mortals and hold my breath to let the wonder in. The quality of love ennobles us when we allow it, when we allow ourselves to touch what Oscar Wilde calls the tainted glory of this world with love. It ennobles us. The approach of love and respect and nonviolence, says Martin Luther King, does not immediately change the heart of the oppressor. It first does something to the hearts and souls of those committed to it. It gives them new self-respect. It calls up resources of strength and courage that they did not know they had. And when finally it touches their opponent, it stirs their conscience that reconciliation becomes a reality. So we're learning or we're remembering this art of love. We're finding our way into live from the consciousness that's connected and trusted. We're also learning the art of compassion. When that love meets pain, it turns to compassion. As the Sufis say, Overcome any bitterness because you were not up to the magnitude of pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world who carries the pain of the world in her heart, each of us is endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain. You are sharing in that pain and called upon to meet it in compassion instead of self-pity. Basically, life refuses to grant you immunity from difficulties. It is part of the human story and the human journey. How do you touch it? How do you touch your own or others? Can you touch it with compassion? It's natural to us, but we forget. I remember this uh, woman who was in an interview group And, you know, she was really shy and she didn't even want to speak in the group. There were like six people, seven. She said, I hate speaking in groups. I said, has that always been so? She said, always, always. I always feel like I'm going to do the wrong thing. She said, anything I say. I said, well, close your eyes. You know, we talked about it a little and so forth. And see if you can remember back to a place where you felt freer to speak. Something beautiful. Couldn't remember it. I said, well, how back, far back does it go? Oh, as far as I can remember. There must have been some moment in your childhood where you felt free. She said, they judged me all the time. They, I was always watching what I was doing was wrong. I said, just let it come. Feel your body. And all of a sudden, she rose, raised her hand. She said, crayons. I said, what's that? She said, I'm five. I'm holding these crayons. I said, great, you could draw. She said, no, 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 I can't draw a picture. They'll judge me and criticize me, but I can hold the crayons. Already I was ready to weep. So after that interview group, I went out and I bought her a box of crayons. I gave it to her some paper. I said, why don't you go out and, you know, you could try this again, right? Um, And uh, she came back. And I said, so, you know, what would you do if you could do anything? And she said, she held up the crayon, she closed her eyes, she said, I would dance like a fairy princess. And she went out in the desert with her crayons and she danced and she drew another drawing. 
She was 64 years old. It was the first time she'd drawn a picture since she was five years old. There is some need for us each to touch the measure of difficulties that's been given to us with a pure heart. And that is the heart of compassion. Our own, the struggles of the people sitting around us, of the people in our family and community and neighborhood and the world. And it is as natural to you as your own breath, this compassion. It's not far away. I mean, I think that, you know, because I worked in San Quentin and places, I mean, I've met some amazing people inside. The most hardened criminal would easily reach out to kind of help a child who'd fallen in the middle of the street as anybody else. It's just there. It's wired into us. Ellie Wiesel, the Nobel Prize winner, writes, suffering confers neither privileges nor rights. It all depends how you use it. If you use it to increase the anguish of yourself or others, you are degrading, even betraying it. And yet the day will come when we shall understand that suffering can elevate human beings. God help us to bear our suffering well. So you have your sufferings and your difficulties, and those are part of the game. Hold them with compassion, because they're not just yours. They're the pain of incarnation. They're the pain of humanity. And then your heart grows in wisdom. You come to this enlightened heart that says, yes, this is the nature of the world. My favorite kindergarten teacher, Peggy, talked about the very beginning of the Iraq war, um, right before the war started, seems like forever ago, five, six years ago. Um, Her kindergarten kids were out playing on the playground, and these military planes were flying over the school. They were deploying people, but they were also taking a lot of armaments and various things, staging them in the Middle East. And military planes are loud. They don't have the sort of Uh, restrictions of civilian planes at certain times. And the kids got really frightened because here were these big army or air force planes flying over low, a lot of noise, and they ran inside and said, what's that, what's that? And she said, well, do you know about that there's going to be a war probably? Oh yeah, our parents have been talking, we've seen it in the news and television. What do you think are on those planes? Bombs, guns, soldiers, yeah, probably all those kinds of things. Where are they taking over to Iraq? And then one of the kids said, well, do they have kids over there like us? And Peggy said, yeah, they do. And this little boy said, well, they must not know that. They wouldn't be taking all those bombs over there if there were kids like us there. We have to let them know. And so the whole class went out in recess and they took paper plates and sticks and they made this huge picture of a kid on the playground, and then, you know, Iraq, they spelled out, they got, so that, so that you could see it from the air, so that the pilots and the people who were flying the planes would know that there were children there. It is so much a part of who we are to love one another and to feel the sympathetic compassion, mirror neurons in modern neuroscience. They resonate the limbic resonance with the feelings of another. It's there. And so we do compassion practice. We picture people in difficulty, ourselves, our own difficulty. May I be held in compassion. May my suffering diminish. And we invite that quality. It's the quality of your own awakened heart. And you need it as you go through this practice. And then there's joy. You don't end in compassion. If it was just suffering and compassion, you know, get your money back, really. (laughs) I mean, no thank you. The Dalai Lama says, if you can't be happy, or my teacher Gosananda, the Gandhi of Cambodia, was one of the most joyful people I ever met. The point isn't to suffer. The point is to be willing to open your heart to the whole of the dance of humanity and in it find this awakened nature, your own Buddha nature that says, yes, this is the dance. And so you shift, you move. When things get quiet and there isn't a lot of suffering, 
And you start to experience this natural joy of life and it comes as energy in the body and luminosity and you're out taking a walk and you're doing your walking meditation and you feel like you're two years old again. You know what that's like? You know, you start to get quiet and you take a step and you haven't been that attentive to a step in, in walking since you were a little kid. You know, and there's a leaf you want to pick up and play with and you watch the birds chasing each other and the world starts to come alive for you again. Sometimes I go about pitying myself, say the Ojibwe Indians, when all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. And so you begin to let go of your identification with suffering. You know, we're so loyal to our suffering in our history. E.B. White, the essayist and philosopher, said, I wake in the morning unsure of whether to save the world or savor it. Another of those paradoxes. And if you can't also savor it, you can't save it. It's, 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 it's uh, critical. Andre Gide writes, know that joy is rarer, more difficult, more beautiful than sadness. Once you make this all-important discovery, you must embrace joy as a moral obligation. And so when you're sitting and the breath gets a little quieter or the mind starts to settle down or you're walking and things get a little easier and you start to feel a little better. It's not just about the breath or the steps. They're the vehicle to feel well-being and joy and happiness and the kind of beauty that comes into consciousness which is also a part of the practice. It deepens it. It's part of who you are. Here's a fierce poem two poems for you. This from Jack Gilbert in The New Yorker, A Brief for the Defense. So he's the lawyer on the side of, you'll see what. Sorrow everywhere, slaughter everywhere. If babies are not starving someplace, they're starving somewhere else with flies in their nostrils. But we enjoy our lives because that's also what the gods want. Otherwise, the mornings before summer dawn would not be made so fine and the Bengal tiger would not be fashioned so miraculously. And the poor women at the fountain are laughing together between the suffering they've known and the awfulness in their future. If we deny our happiness, resist our satisfaction, we lessen the importance of their deprivation. We must risk Delight. We can do without pleasure-seeking, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of this world. To make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil. If the locomotive of the Lord runs us down, we should give thanks that the end had magnitude. We must admit that there will be music despite everything. And I carry with me this picture of Vedran Smolovich, the cellist in Sarajevo in the Balkan War 10 years ago, the Bosnians and Serbs. And Sarajevo was besieged for three years. Only helicopters from the UN got in and out. Mortars, sniper. And this is Vedran playing in the bombed-out National Library of Sarajevo. He was in the National Symphony. And what he would do every afternoon would be to put on his tux and go out to the square where there were snipers and mortar and bring his cello and play music so the people of Sarajevo would not give up hope. There will be music despite everything and there will be beauty in the midst of everything. And we awaken to it. There was a study that was done in London a few years ago in a relatively quite poor area, a lot of poverty and quite a bit of crime, and they took two parallel streets, some blocks apart, and one of them, without telling anybody, they cleaned up. They had the street sweepers go two, three times a week. They got rid of the graffiti. They made sure all the street lamps were lighted. They planted some flowers in the flower beds. They made it beautiful, and they kept it that way. And the other street, same kind of street, ways away, Main Street. And at the end of a year, 
they discovered that the crime on the street that they'd beautified um, was 50% less than the the street that was left untended. Uh, There is a... There's a benefit and a blessing and a calling to see the beauty of this world as well as its sorrow. And this is the teaching of the awakened heart of joy that shares the joy in the world and in the happiness of others. And you feel it grow as you practice. And then the fourth of these qualities, each one joy has its practice. You picture people being happy, you know, picture their happiest moment as a child. You picture, you know, someone you love and may your joy increase as you visualize them. May you dwell in happiness and the causes of happiness. May we all see the beauty and joy of the world. And you foster that so that you get in touch with the innate joy. And in meditation, it's not just about grim duty. And yeah, you have your moments of that. That's okay. You can be dutiful at times. That's important. But if that's the whole game, it's, it's you're lost. Yes, there's a deepening of suffering. It's almost like the heart gets bigger and you can go through the difficulty and the suffering and the joy. And then you come to understand the great teaching of equanimity, which is the fearless heart. You know, again, go and sometimes I go about pitying myself when all the while I'm carried by great winds across the sky. Einstein talked about it, you know, as the experience of the mysterious. He said, no matter how much you know in science, if you can't look at the stars with a sense of mystery, you've lost everything. And the mystery is really the mystery of incarnation. What makes a plum tree? You know, how did we end up in these weird bodies with wiggly things at the end and a hole at one end into which you stuff dead plants and animals, you know, every day a few times and grind them up and push them through the tube, you know? How'd you get in there, right? In these weird orbs, you know, that we see with, I mean, or speech, you know, I can say, picture an elephant, now make it pink, a big pink elephant, and you can... I flap my tongue, you know, and my lungs do this, and the air vibrates in the little tympanic membrane, and the, you know, the sodium potassium balance in the auditory nerve goes, and it goes to the little part of the auditory part of the brain, and you picture the damn pink elephant. How nobody can explain that. Nobody. Or what is love? You know, what is it really? Or what happens when you die? And everything does. You know, and it's because we let ourselves see and bear this mystery that something beautiful comes in us and this great kind of blessing that comes. Yes, I saw in this New Yorker cartoon a dark hole in our galaxy 300 million light years across does make me feel insignificant. But all I have to do is look around at my colleagues in the office and my equanimity is restored. There are those, says the Buddha, who discover they can leave behind confused reactions and become patient as the earth, unmoved by the fires of fear and anger, unshaken as a pillar, unperturbed as a clear and quiet pool, that clear forest pool I spoke of. And what happens as we sit and walk in this aspect of awakening, these are all qualities of awakening that are growing in you. I I sometimes talk about this as like a greenhouse, right? And there are all these like potted Buddha plants, you know, that were getting watered during the day. And little by little, a little seed comes out to become a a branch and a, you know, and a leaf and so forth. And these qualities of the awakened heart of love, of compassion, of a deeper joy, of greater freedom, they grow in us as we sit and walk and bring ourselves to the experience of life from spacious attention rather than being lost in it. There comes a kind of extraordinary possibility of seeing the joys and sorrows and gain and loss and praise and blame with the heart of a Buddha, 
that's not trying to fix it or make it different, but to see this is, this is the dance of life. And it brings a tremendous trust. So Zen Master Suzuki writes about this. He says, when he was dying of cancer, he says, if when I die, if I suffer, that's all right, you know. No confusion in it. Maybe everyone will suffer a bit as I die. But this is the way things are. It's just suffering Buddha. Sun Buddha, moon Buddha, happy Buddha, sad Buddha, Buddha being born, Buddha dying. This is the way things are. If you had an endless life, he said, that would be a real problem for you. What's true is that we're born into this cycle of life. And the eye of wisdom that begins to open sees the dance of life and rests in the space that can bow to it from our Buddha nature and say, yes, this too. And it doesn't mean we don't respond. We care for our children. We get up and work for the environment, you know, and for the earth, the things we care about. We're responsible. This is part of the paradox. But we do it from this place of wisdom of the Buddha within us rather than this small, frightened person, which doesn't help anybody, quite honestly. We're the one on the ship, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, that's, that stays calm and centered. And with this equanimity, then you can't... You want to know the secret? You know, you paid your money, you've been sitting... Here's the secret, all right, from the Bhagavad Gita. The secret is to act well without attachment to the fruits of the action. You cannot determine the outcome. What is given to you in this beautiful world is to awaken and live with good intentions and good actions. It's not up to you to decide when or how the fruit will come. It simply isn't. Thomas Merton, who says, do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and achieve no result at all, if not perhaps bring about its opposite. As you get used to this idea, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, and the truth of the work itself. And so in equanimity, may I rest at peace in the midst of all things, all beings, you look at all beings, who you, who you care for, you say, there, your happiness and suffering depends primarily on your actions and not my wishes for you. I do what I can, but your happiness and suffering depends on what you do in your life and not how I want it to be. doesn't mean you don't care, but this equanimity is a balance for getting too attached with your love and compassion. You, can you hear that? This is the way it is. And you come instead to rest in the sense of grace, that it's not yours, but it's the world's world. Um, You become still like water. You know, what did uh, William Butler Yeats write? He said, we can make our minds so like still water that beings gather around us that they may see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. We rest in eternity in that timeless, open heart and all things become freer and more beautiful. And even the sorrow, it touches us in a way. We can respond, we can know it. All these are part of the dance of the awakened heart. And as you sit and walk and practice, the sense of freedom grows. The sense of the greatness of love and compassion will grow in you. And your own personal uniqueness, here you are, incarnated in this time, in this way, in this body, given these gifts which you need to honor. It's both personal and universal and you can't deny either of your Buddha nature, you know, and your own unique journey. And to sit in the midst of it is such a privilege and difficult. That's okay. What better thing to do? So let's sit for a moment. 